Sentire media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 59, Barbarossa Brings the Heat. In the last episode, we saw how Pope Hadrian IV had jumped on the bandwagon of the anti-Norman alliance, along with many rebel vassals of Calabria and Puglia, and even an army from Byzantium. In the end, the alliance had been defeated. But the Pope had still got a pretty good deal out of it, and he had recognized William I Hauteville as king of the Kingdom of Sicily and received his allegiance and protection in return, which finally allowed him to get back into Rome and coexist for a time with a more docile Senate. Soon after that, Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa had returned to northern Italy to sort out the naughty, rebellious communes, Milan in particular, and in 1158 he had convened the Diet of Roncaglia, in which, basically, he had said that he was the boss and that everybody had to do what he said. Now, this is obviously a little bit of an oversimplification, as you can imagine. In fact, Roncaglia represents an interesting attempt on the part of the emperor to come to terms with the complicated reality of the Italian peninsula. It was a mix of old and new. Indeed, it gave him sovereignty over marches and counties and duchies and recognized the rulers of those realities as vassals. But it also did not ignore the presence of the communes and their alternating and differentiated interactions with the remaining feudal structures, the bishops, and with each other. Obviously, as always, there was the further complication of the papal states, with the Pope being the spiritual leader of Christianity and having had the authority to crown Frederick himself, but also being a political entity that was therefore subject, in the emperor's view, to his authority. In other words, it was an attempt by Barbarossa to claim his authority over a big mess. We mentioned that the decisions of the Diet were voted unanimously. Their application, however, was quite a different story. The city of Piacenza, for example, rebelled, and Frederick had to trim their towers so they were no higher than 20 arm lengths, and the resulting rubble was used to fill their defensive ditches. That was enough to convince them that maybe the decisions of Roncaglia were a good idea after all. The city of Crema, on the other hand, took a little more convincing. Now, allow me to digress for a moment. Crema is a city in Lombardy, east and slightly south of Milan, not far from Lodi. I have always liked the name of the city, which means cream. The next relatively big city heading southeast is 
cremona, which you could translate as big cream. That just sort of tickles my fancy. Anyway, now that my dear listeners, you are familiar with the communal politics, would you imagine that the inhabitants of cream and big cream got along peacefully and in harmony? No, not at all. They hated each other's guts. So much so that Cremona actually paid Emperor Barbarossa quite a hefty sum to sort Crema out for them. This allows us a little digression within a digression to talk about how Frederick got a hold of some of the money that it cost to continue coming down to Italy to sort things out. In his decently long career, he actually organized six expeditions into the country. Well, we just mentioned one way of raising money, which was cities paying him to come and sort out issues for them. On the other side of the same situation, once the offending city had been sorted out, they may have been asked to pay a tribute as well as with Milan in the last episode. Add this to the income from donations from vassals and other forms of regular imperial income, and you get how he was able to spend all that time sorting things out in different ways, although the money was not always quite enough. Anyway, back to Crema. They were not happy with the decisions of Roncaglia and sent away the imperial legate in a most unfriendly manner. Barbarossa, with the help of his faithful Lodigiani, the inhabitants of the city of Lodi, laid siege to Crema. Testudos, battering rams and siege towers were built. To protect the siege towers, Frederick used captured Cremaschi, the inhabitants of Crema, as human shields on those towers. The inhabitants inside the walls did not hesitate to rain down a hail of arrows on them anyway, killing their compatriots. For revenge, they brought the captured besieging prisoners up onto the walls and after horribly mutilating them, cut their throats. In the end, the city had to give in. They were spared their lives, but not their city. The walls and houses were torn down, the moats were filled, and the Lodigiani, Kremaski and Pavesi, who had also assisted in the siege, mercilessly sacked the city. When Barbarossa left, what had once been the city of Crema was a vast pile of rubble. The destruction of Crema did not act as a deterrent to other cities. There were violent protests in Genoa and, of course, Milan. But not only. The Papal States were also bubbling with our old mate, the English Pope Hadrian IV, declaring the independence of the Papal States from the Empire. Sadly for poor old Hadrian, this was also when he left the scene for good. His death occurred in the city of Anagni on the 1st of September. That's spelt A-N-A-G-N-I, because remember that in Italian, the G-N spelling is pronounced Ny. I have found a bit of divergence in my sources on how he actually died. Some say 
It was from a peritonsillar abscess, also known as quincy. I looked that up because I didn't have the faintest clue what it was, and it sounds quite nasty. Other possible causes are being bitten by a poisonous insect, and that also kind of freaked me out because I didn't know we had poisonous insects in Italy that could kill you, and I hope that they have since become extinct. The last and perhaps silliest possible explanation for the death of Pope Hadrian IV was that he choked on a fly in his wine. I mean, I know an old lady who swallowed a fly. I don't know why she swallowed a fly. Perhaps she'll die. I know an old lady who swallowed a spider that wriggled and tickled and wiggled inside her. She swallowed a spider to catch the fly. Anyway, whatever the method may have been, the end result was that the Pope was dead. I'll bet you'll never, ever guess what happened next. Well, there were two factions, and each faction wanted to elect a different pope. Among the various reasons for the two factions being divided, there was a pro-imperial and anti-imperial divide. The pro-imperials wanted to elect the Roman cardinal Ottaviano Monticelli, The anti-imperials wanted a cardinal from Siena, Rolando Bandinelli. In the end, the anti-imperial Bandinelli was acclaimed. However, as he and his supporters were in St. Peter's doing the whole turn a guy into a pope ceremony thing, the supporters of the other guy, Monticelli, tore the papal robe from off Bandinelli's shoulders and put it on their guy. Unfortunately, in the hurry and the hubbub, they put it on the wrong way round. An all-out battle in the basilica ensued. There was fighting even on the altars and in the confessionals where many priests sought refuge. In the end, the pro-imperials won out and took their man, Monticelli, from St. Peter's to the Lateran to be made Pope with the name of Victor IV. Meanwhile, the anti-imperials whisked Bandinelli away and made him Pope Alexander III. With all the pro- and anti-imperial business going on, it was the emperor himself who tried to intervene to solve the schism. He called for a council in Pavia, but Alexander III refused to attend. Not surprisingly, at the council, Victor IV was confirmed as the rightful Pope. Alexander III responded by excommunicating Frederick. Now, you may be thinking, so what? The emperor had his own pope, and he hadn't excommunicated him. However, the excommunication of a ruler meant that the vassals of that ruler were no longer obliged to consider themselves bound to said ruler. Therefore, Anyone willing to consider Alexander III the legitimate Pope could also consider themselves free of any obligation to Frederick Barbarossa. The English and French, for example, were quite pleased about this. And I'll bet you'll never guess which Italian city was particularly happy about the excommunication. Go on, try. You got it? 
That's right, Milan. Milan took the excommunication as an excuse to start bullying the staunch pro-imperial Lardi again. In the meantime, Alexander III had left Italy. He convened a council in Toulouse, and guess what? The council confirmed him as legitimate pope, would you believe? In response, Frederick came right back around, convened another council in Pavia, and had Victor IV confirmed as pope. Having tried to sort out the pope situation again, since he was still hanging round Italy, in what we can consider his second expedition, he decided again to try and sort out Milan. He awaited in the north, near Novara, for an army to join him from Germany. The army first joined with the troops from cities in the Piedmont area, Asti and Vercelli, as well as the Malaspina and Monferrato family troops. In the spring of 1161, the army headed to Milan, which was already under siege by Lodi, Pavia, Cremona and Novara. After six months, hunger set in. One chronicler states that brother would fall upon brother for a crust of bread. By the seventh month, the city sent a delegation of nine consuls and eight magistrates to offer peace terms. They offered to shorten their towers, fill in their defensive ditches, give 300 hostages and accept an imperial podesta to rule over the city. They also offered a huge amount of cash. Barbarossa replied that he would accept nothing short of unconditional surrender. The representatives were made to kneel before him. Those of the trade corporations were also called and made to hand over their standards. And the leader of the city defences, Guitelmo, handed Barbarossa the keys to the city. In March of 1162, Barbarossa ordered the complete destruction of the city of Milan. Only the churches were to be spared. It is on this occasion that the last remnants of Roman Mediolanum were destroyed, leaving very little that has survived for us to see today. I mentioned that the churches were to be spared as far as the buildings went, but that didn't include what was inside them. Indeed, it is in this instance that the relics believed to be the remains of the three wise men, or three kings, yes, the ones of we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts we travel afar, were taken from St. Eustorgio's church and can now be seen in the Cathedral of Köln in Germany. Perhaps the most humiliating thing was that the city had to hand over its carroccio. This was originally in Lombard times a war cart that would be taken into battle. But in time, it had come to bear the insignia of the communes and an altar where prayers would be said in times of great need or before a battle. We have seen the Milanese rally around their carroccio before when Archbishop Aribert called them to arms against Emperor Conrad II and managed to resist his siege. 
Its importance can be compared to that of the eagle standards of the Roman legions, or to the stars and stripes for the American people. Soon, the Carroccio would have its moment in the limelight once again. But for the moment, it was yet another symbol of the destruction and humiliation of Milan by Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa. Thanks very much, as always. Thanks in particular to my Patreon supporters, the Anita and Giuseppe Garibaldi level, Ed, Jeff, Joshua, Sean, and Jimmy, the Matilda Di Canossa and Giuseppe Mazzini level, Benjamin, Maddie, Mattia, Roberta, Scott, and YR, the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei level, Anthony, Ben, Silane, Chris, Dean, Ignazio, Jay, Caitlin, Kevin, Shelby, Stephen, and Vincent, and the top level, Maria Montessori, and Dante Alighieri, Sen, Paolo, and Reactionary Venetian. Also, I would really like to give a great big welcome to two new patrons, Aaron and a personal friend of mine, Lorenzo. Thank you very much to both of you and welcome to the family. Remember that you can get in touch whenever you want with queries, questions, uh, considerations, uh, just to say hello, whatever you want. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can find the website where you can click through to social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook, and you can consult maps, timelines, and anything else you need to navigate our country's complicated history. Until next time, thanks again very much to everyone for listening, and arrivederci. I'm gonna fart in your general directions.
I unclog my nose in your direction, sons of a window dresser. You tiny brained wipers of other people's bottoms. Very well, citizens, or should I say subjects, I have heard your reasons. Now, hear mine. So, what do you think? Okay, we agree. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.